Good morning and welcome to Elk Point Baptist Church this morning. It's certainly a different experience preaching to an empty church and I pray for a quick return to our normal services. Today we are continuing in our expositional study of the book of Philippians. And I've come to a very familiar passage to those who have spent much time in the church. The words are ingrained in our minds and we can picture Paul writing them to his most beloved church family in Philippi as he is imprisoned in Rome, writing them and awaiting his trial and execution. The prevailing theme of the letter to the Philippian church, as you know, is one of joy and thanksgiving. The joy is a deep-seated contentment, peace, and happiness of the soul that is unwavering in the face of trials, persecution, and even death. The joy is the joy of the Lord, that profound satisfaction of the soul that can only come as a result of communion with Jesus. While Paul continually looked forward to his eternal state, he never lost sight of the fact that there was work for him to do on earth. Work that both honored and glorified God and also, and importantly, brought him great joy. His ultimate goal was to bring glory to God in both his life and his service and even in his death. So our passage under study today, if you turn to it, is Philippians 1, 19 to 26. Would you turn there and follow along as I read? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Let us pray as we begin to study this portion of God's Word to us. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would open your scripture to us, that through your Holy Spirit you would speak to us through your Word. We pray that you would open our hearts to your Word so that we are receptive to it so that you can speak to us, that you can convict us of sin, that you can encourage us. And I pray for each one listening today that we would all be open to your word. And we pray for a mighty working of your Holy Spirit today. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. I have entitled my message today, To Live as Christ, to Die as Gain, the Tension of the Joy-Filled Christian Life. Unlike most tension, this is good tension, as both forces are good, but one we shall see is better. As I studied this passage, I began to see that it does indeed hinge on that familiar phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain. The passage builds on this, dwells on it, comes to a conclusion and then resolves the situation. We need to explore what Paul meant by this. This phrase that's a bit unusual in our culture and in our terminology. There are some other words and phrases and thoughts that need clarification as well. When I approach a passage to study, my normal process is to just usually start asking questions about words and phrases and thoughts that are written. These require investigation, and one tries to have the surrounding passage and context answer as much as possible. Scripture interprets scripture, as we have been taught so faithfully. So first, let's ask some questions of the text. Here were some of my questions, and you, you may have others. First, what does my deliverance mean? In verse 19. Next, what does it mean to not be at all ashamed? Also, what does he mean by fruitful labor in verse 22? And how could he be hard-pressed between the two possibilities of living and dying? Why is he then convinced that he must remain in the flesh? Finally, what can we determine about Paul's ultimate goal in life? Before we get to the questions of the text, let's review what we already know. What do we know about the immediate context of this letter? As we have studied before, Paul had a very good and fond relationship with his church as he had been strongly associated with it since the beginning and it had supported him financially and with their prayers for many years. This church, was his joy in the Lord. 
In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. This church was one that stuck with him through all his trials over his missionary years. He prayed for their progress and joy, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness and that Christ would be honored in all that they did. Philippi, as you remember, was a Roman colony. So they were very familiar with the concept of citizenship and the benefits thereof. And Paul presses this issue in his letter to make sure that they knew that their true citizenship is in heaven. The Christian life has many tensions. We are at one time citizens of earth and at the same time citizens of heaven. We are told to fear God. We are told to honor the king. Our ultimate and true loyalty is to the God of heaven and earth. And our goal is to honor and glorify him above all else. Paul continually thought and wrote about his joy in the faith. There were and have been few others that endured such persecution as the Apostle Paul did, and yet his purpose was singular. His focus was narrow and precise. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul's view was eternal. I have been particularly encouraged over the years by his words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is Paul's mindset his afflictions and persecutions, the imprisonment and all his trials are momentary and transient in his mind. Life, in fa- life itself, in fact, is transient. I'm reminded of the words in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the grass fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our passage under study today presents a tension, but sadly, it is not the tension that we often struggle with due to our sinly, sinful and worldly desires. The tension is one of a joy-filled Christian life, one that takes great joy in serving God and seeing him glorified here on earth, and one that also eagerly looks forward to the life hereafter in close communion with Christ himself. 
I think that we often instead struggle with the choice between enjoying the pleasures of this earth rather than desiring eternal communion with God. We are often short-sighted. Deep down, we really don't want to leave this life because we want to do this or that. We have plans. We want to experience something else. We want to see our children growing up and have families. We want to see our career blossom. Do we really believe that to be with Christ is far better? As Paul tells us in verse 23. When a believer dies at any age, do we trust in the fact that this person is far better off? It's a difficult and hard thought. But if we truly believe and know the truth of Scripture, it should be our first thought. So my main point today is that the Christian life is one of tension. Tension between the joy of serving Christ here on earth and seeing him glorified and the greater joy of being with Christ himself in the eternal state. Either way, we should have joy. Joy that we get to serve Christ here and see him magnified on earth in our lives and in the lives of other believers or the joy that lies ahead of us as we look forward to the blessed hope of communing with him forever. So let's go back and flesh things out a little in our passage. In verse 19, Paul states that he will rejoice because he knows he will be delivered. What does he mean by deliverance? It might not be what you expect. A study of the word and the context reveals that this means his salvation. Paul is not trusting in a deliverance from prison. He is trusting in a deliverance from this life into the next, for he knows that this is far better. He is trusting on the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit to maintain his expectation and hope in the life hereafter. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. For this enlarges the kingdom of God here on earth, one heart and one soul at a time. The more believers, the more glory given to God, the greater joy that Paul has. His eager expectation and hope is that there is nothing that he does or has done that will cause shame to himself or to the cause of Christ. He takes full courage in the work of, his, of the Holy Spirit in his life and in the fellowship of the saints, that Christ will always be honored in his body. Whether an act's performed while he is alive or by his death. It brings to mind the words of the psalmist in Psalm 116.15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is a difficult verse to comprehend if you do not have the eternal glory of God in mind. Human life here on earth is transient and temporary. What matters eternally is the glory of God. Our lives and our deaths for his sake can 
and should bring him glory and be precious in his sight. Verse 21 brings us to our pivotal and key verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It seems to be such a simple sentence. But in it is bound up the whole of the Christian life. Summarized therein is our reason for living and the reason for our eternal hope. It tells us how to view life and how to view death. It brings into focus everything that we do, that we say, that we think, that we believe, and that we trust in as we live our Christian life. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Four, four words that mean everything. To live is Christ. The definition of our life, our reason for being, should be Christ. Our, our entire life is to revolve around Christ himself. Christ should be the defining and central figure in our lives. Everything that we do or say or think should be honoring Christ. Paul helps explain this in the following verses. Listen to his words. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's purpose and goal in life was not to sit back in ease and comfort, to retire, to give up, or to languish in prison. For him to live was to serve Christ. Fruitful labor. That sounds like work. He was focused on others, on your account, your progress and joy, that you may glory in Christ Jesus. To live was to serve Christ and to see him glorified by the proclamation of the gospel and the sanctification of the saints. It gave Paul great joy to see other believers progress in their faith. In fact, to serve Christ is the reason for living. To live is Christ. Nothing else mattered. Paul was facing sheer and certain death by execution at some point, yet he was convinced that while he was still alive, his purpose was to serve Christ by serving his church and by proclaiming the gospel. But also, to die is gain. Now, gain is always a benefit, something better. In contrast to a life-exalting Christ, death is better. It is a net gain. Paul is faced with a decision. 
Not a decision about what to do necessarily, because he is not contemplating ending his life, but a decision about what to think and how to think. And this is a decision that we all have to make. At some point, we all have to make decisions about life and death and what we're going to think. Are we going to base our decisions and our thoughts on our emotions or on our knowledge? Maybe at the end of the day it's not really a decision. Maybe it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we soak ourselves in the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts and our minds to write a new law in our hearts, one that loves Jesus more than anything. The more saturated that we are in the word and in his truth, the more we are drawn to Jesus. But he does say, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. There is a conscious choice of some sort. How does he view death? He knows he's in a predicament. He knows he's in jail. There's no real hope of release. He also knows that his eternal reward is waiting for him. He knows that the end of suffering, pain, hardship, and sorrow is nearby. It seems easy that he should resign himself to the blessed hope of being with his Savior. But it's not an easy decision for him. In fact, he says he is hard-pressed between the two. It is like he is walking into a crevice in the mountains and the wall of rock is coming in on him this side and another wall is coming on this side and it's getting tighter and tighter and he's getting squeezed. Both are pressing in on him. He's facing pressure in his mind about what to think and what to do. And he resolves this conflict by knowing the truth and trusting God. The desire of his soul, the deep-seated desire of all that he is in Christ, is to depart and be with Christ, to be with his Savior. He knows with everything that he has, and is that this is far better. The only way that he can know this is through the work of the Holy Spirit. No one looks at death with confidence and hope if they do not have the hope of Christ in them. There is no fear. There is only hope and joy and expectation. Life with Christ after death is far better than anything that we can ever imagine or experience here on earth. It is indeed the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I've often been comforted by those two little words when a believer has died. Far better. Far better. Not just marginally better. Not just a little bit better. It's not even a close comparison. It's far better. The superlative is important. It is indeed better than anything that we could have ever imagined. We need not pity those saints who have passed on before us. 
they are rejoicing in heaven and are free from the trials of this life and are now enjoying Christ forever. That is indeed far better and that is indeed our hope. But Paul does not stop here. While he knows that death is better for him, he trusts that God is in control and that while he is still here, he still has work to do. He does not begrudge this work, however. He counts it as a privilege, as an honor, to be able to continue to serve the Lord in fruitful labor. But he's in prison. What can he do in prison? He still had the freedom to have visitors which he could encourage and teach. He could still write letters to the churches that he administered to, and he could still pray. Paul made the most of his isolation. He never lost his purpose because his heart was centered on the joy that he had in Christ, and he wanted to do all that he could to foster the progress and joy in other believers. So he ends his passage with these words. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul wanted to see them glory in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? I think if we take it in context, he wanted them wanted to see them have their joy in Christ in all circumstances. He wanted to see them glorify Christ by living their life with Christ as their focal point. When we are focused on Christ, we begin to see him work all around us, in our lives and in the lives of others. When we see answered prayer or God's provision in another matter, we take great joy and we give glory to Christ. Paul was joyful at the prospect that he could in some way facilitate their joy in Christ as they learned to live in Christ. So what does it all mean for us today? Do we really face a choice each day between life and death? Do we have joy? Do we have hope? Do we seek to have fruitful labor for Christ in all that we do each day? Or is some of our labor just for ourselves? One thing that the recent events of the world has taught us is that people are afraid to die. There's been very little courage or hope shown in the thoughts and minds of the general public when facing the possibility of death due to the coronavirus. In fact, worldwide panic has ensued. Is this virus transient or is it eternal? The only death to be feared is death without Christ. Because death with Christ is gain according to the word of God. Our world is lost and without hope. Fearful that a strand of genetic material will infect them and take them to their grave. You know what? This is good. 
If you are without Christ, you need a moment of clarity. You need a moment of fear. You need to know that man is appointed once to die and after that face the judgment of a holy and righteous God who is sovereign over all life and all death and all viruses. You need to know that you are sinful and unable to please a holy God and that God sent his son Jesus to live a holy and perfect life and to take upon himself the sin of all who would believe so that you might have life. If we confess our sins, he is hope, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can have eternal life. You can have hope. And you can have it today if you repent and turn to Jesus. We need clarity as Christians, though, as well today. We need clarity of thought with regards to death. We need to know the truth of Scripture before we are in a situation where we need it. We need to know that those who die in Christ are in a place that is far better than we can ever comprehend on our own. We need to trust in that. We need to not only have peace in that, but also have joy in that. When the time comes and we are faced with the reality of a loved one departing this life, we need to be settled in the knowledge that this is far better. We need to have no fear of death for ourselves, only fear of death for others who die without Christ. We need to have our hope in Christ alone not in our medical system or in our savings account. Life is short and life is transient. We are only a moment away from death. We need to have a knowledge of the truth such that we know in the depths of our soul that it is far better to be with Christ. But if we cannot be with him, then we should make it our joy to serve him in fruitful labor all the days of our lives. So while we wait for that blessed day, we need to be in service to our king. Are we serving in fruitful and joyful labor? Now is the time for some hard questions. And I ask them of myself as well. We generally work pretty hard. But is it fruitful in the eternal view of things? I don't see an age limit on this in the Bible. If you are a believer of any age, you should be involved in fruitful labor for Christ. All believers are given spiritual gifts to use for the glory of Christ. Teaching, prayer, preaching, hospitality, service, mercy, giving. Discover and develop your gifts for the service to the church. If you are serving, but it is only out of a sense of duty and it is without joy, please stop. This is like the old covenant Israelites bringing their in offerings and saying their prayers, but without any love for God. 
merely out of a sense of duty, and God detests that. Do you serve because you should or because you want to? Is it out of a sense of joy for the kingdom of God that you share your faith, share a meal, or share your home? Joy is the only acceptable motivator. But what if you have no joy? What if even though you are saved, you don't have this deep-seated contentment of the soul? I think we need to look back at why and how it gets there. It gets there because you know and love Jesus more than anything. Maybe we need to get back into the Word and get to know Jesus better, to know how he gave up everything to seek and to save those who were lost. To know, as we've heard recently, that legions of angels are on your side to minister to you. To know that the creator and king of the universe loves even you. Our problems and our trials will seem pretty insignificant when we dwell on the truth that we find in scripture. Joy comes from a knowledge of the truth. In conclusion, I pray that you would have this good and healthy tension in your life, regardless of your age. May your gaze be continually heavenward, but your footsteps be straight ahead of you as you joyfully serve our Lord in fruitful labor. May we all engage in activities that advance and profit the kingdom of God. May we uplift each other in prayer and thanksgiving. I hope that many of you are meeting together with others at this time. Take the time to discuss honestly where you are at with this tension. Do you look heavenward each day? Do you view death as gain far better than anything we can imagine? Are you engaged in fruitful labor for Christ each day? I'll close with the words of Paul in Romans 8, 31 to 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also get with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Note that it is in all these trials, including death, that we are conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that your word is spoken to us today through your Holy Spirit, that we would be guided and convicted, that we would seek to engage in fruitful labor for you at all times. And at the same time, we would look heavenward in eager expectation of the blessed hope of being together with you forever. May that encourage us and drive us on each day. May that grant us great joy. May our labors be joyful as we seek to advance your kingdom here on earth. Lord, would you bless us today? Would you pour your Holy Spirit upon us to guide and direct us? We pray for the church today that we would be encouraged, that we would all find joy, the joy that comes from a deep, knowledge of you. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.